All right, I think that's us. We are in Isaiah chapter 16. Isaiah chapter 16. So uh, obviously we finished Isaiah 15 last week, and that dealt with the uh, what was called in the text the burden of Moab. So Moab being uh, neighboring kingdom to Judah and Israel uh, toward the east-ish. And we're in the middle of this series of several verses, or chapters rather, um, that break down various words of doom and gloom to um, kingdoms and empires and even cities we'll get to as we go into this class tonight. Uh, that are surrounding God's people and then circling around eventually coming back to the core which is God's people themselves and that's where we are we just finished <coughs> chapter 15 a very downbeat word of doom to Moab chapter 16 begins still talking about Moab and it begins with the offering of God for them to repent and come back to him kind of a recurring theme it's not always guaranteed you're going to get it but it's a recurring theme kind of throughout the Old Testament God will pronounce doom but he will also offer an invitation, Jonah being the great example. Pronounced doom on Nineveh, but sent the prophet to go tell them to repent anyway. Um, so that's where we are. Chapter 16 of Isaiah is God's sending of an invitation. But it's, I want to be very clear what we're going to look at here. Uh, it's going to end very badly for Moab, not to spoil it, but it's not going to be good. But it's, it's not God saying to Moab, hey, you and I aren't getting along, let's work it out. It's not God saying... You know, I'll meet you in the middle. God doesn't meet you in the middle in, in the sense of apology making. He will meet you in the middle of doing everything in his power to save you and doing everything that he is going to do to save you. He'll go there and you go the other way and so forth. But in the the way people the way people are, because every person is flawed, when there's a disagreement, there's probably something that you did. Some element that you could something you could say you're sorry about. That you could, you know, make that olive branch out. God's going to extend an olive branch, but it's, he's not really extending an olive branch in this chapter like we think of it. What he's doing is he's going to say to Moab, I'm giving you permission to extend an olive branch to me. And that's very unique to God. Me, if I do something wrong, or even if I'm what the law would say completely innocent, but you can still find a little something, I would still want to say, and I shouldn't have done this. You know, I'll give you something. I'll throw you a bone. All right, that's my olive branch. I'll throw you a bone. God doesn't have to throw us a bone. And God's not going to throw us a bone. He's not going to give us an olive branch. He's always purely innocent and righteous and always right. So when there's a break between God and his people, it's always his people at fault. And by his people, I don't mean Israel. I mean creation. So Moab has sinned and sinned a lot. And God says, I'm going to destroy you big time. Chapter 15. And now in 16, the first three verses or so, God says, but before I destroy you, I'm giving you permission to ask me not to do that. That's what you're looking at, all right? So look at Isaiah 16, starting in verse 1. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. This is the prophet telling Moab, telling them, you send a lamb, which is what we're calling the olive branch. Send this peace offering. Send a, a sacrifice. Send a message to God that you're sorry and that you've repented so he won't destroy you. I'm telling you to send this to the mount of the daughter of Zion. That will be God's people, Israel, Judah. For it shall be that, verse 2, as the wandering bird is cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords, fords of Arnon. If they don't repent, if God and Moab do not reconcile, all right, and it's not God going here and Moab coming here, it's, it's if they don't reconcile, if Moab doesn't come back to God or come to God, 
then Moab's punishment is going to leave them homeless, stranded. Not a people with a home because they're going to have their homes destroyed by the invading empires of Assyria and then Babylon cleaning up the mess later. They're not going to be a nomadic people. Nomadic people are happy roaming. They don't want a home. They're just going to roam around. They're not going to be a um, migrating people. That's the people that go from one place to another with a goal in mind, a home in mind. They're just going to be a lost, wandering people without anywhere to go. They're just going to be aimlessly moving about. That's what's waiting for them if they don't repent. So you have the invitation now to send this all a branch. Now, verse 3 and 4 have to be read together. It's one sentence. But depending on your translation, the translator will have in mind, okay, I know who's speaking in verse 3, and that's going to explain how I translate verse 4. In my opinion, verse 3 and 4 is Moab's response. This is Moab's letter as they send the peace offering. Moab is going to send this lamb to God's holy mountain. He's going to send this this uh, messenger of repentance. And it's going to seem very sincere. We're going to hear the sincerity in the next couple of verses. And as we go through the rest of the chapter, we're going to eventually learn they're not sincere. So depending on your translation, it may sound like, is this God speaking to Moab? Is this Moab speaking to God? Is this Isaiah speaking here? It's Moab speaking, in my opinion. It'll make more sense when you look at the next verse. But look at verse 3. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday, hide the outcast, betray not him that wanders. These sound like the kind of things, like the checklist of things that God would say to a nation in order for them to repent. And it's kind of the way it's translated in my Bible. I don't know how it is in yours, but it reads kind of like a, a checklist of things. Do these things, all right? Take counsel, uh, be wise, to go with our devotional tonight, execute judgment, be fair, Make the shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Provide shelter for the needy. Betray not him that wanders. All right. Now, if you take out Moab and what we just read in the first two verses, that especially that last phrase, it just sounds like God saying, look out for the people. You know, be a people who are wise and who are just and who take care of those who are downtrodden. All right. That's all good. But this is Moab speaking to God, sending this so-called olive branch, saying what we want you to do, God, is consider our offer. Take counsel. Execute judgment. Treat us fairly. Uh, give us shelter. Shadow in the night like the noonday, the King James says. Give us shelter. And hide our outcasts. Hide our wandering people, because that's who they are, previously established in the first two verses. Uh, we're going to be wandering without a home. Provide for us a place to go. Verse 4. Now here's where it gets tricky depending on your translation. Because the King James translators thought that God was talking to Moab. And so they took the, the, um, the phraseology and the comma placement, if you will, which the Hebrew doesn't have commas or anything like that, and they arranged it to where it seems like God's talking to Moab. My Bible says this, Let my outcast dwell with you, Moab. Now, if I say that in the English, I'm talking to Moab, and I'm telling them, Let my outcast dwell with you, Moab. What does your Bible say? Just the beginning of verse 4. All right, let the outcasts of Moab. And that's, I don't, I don't want to say that's more accurate because it's just, it's just translation. Here's what the words are. Now, where do you stick the comma and where do you arrange the word, you know, at what part uh, of it? But contextually, it's just Moab talking to God. Let my outcasts, the outcasts of Moab, dwell with you, he says to God. Be you a cover to them, a covering to them from the face of the, King James says, spoiler, that's Assyria, the, the one who would rob us and plunder us and destroy us. For the extortioner is at an end, and the spoiler ceases, and the oppressors are consumed out of the land. 
to the end of, to the uh, goal being. Give us a place, really what Moab is asking God here, is a place to crash. We, we're wandering, we're, we're homeless, Assyria has stripped and destroyed our land. We need somewhere to, to, to be protected. We need somewhere to crash, we need a couch. And then when all this blows over, then we can go back and resettle our land. But until then, it's, it's a hot area. We don't need to go there right now. So give us a place to be at rest and at peace. And then when it's all over, we'll go back home. But that is not what God is interested in. The beginning of this chapter is God saying to them, bring me a lamb. Now, when the God of the Old Testament wants a lamb, what is he asking for? Who knows? What does lamb mean when you give God a lamb in the Old Testament? Yeah, or to put it in another word, it starts with a W, ends in worship. What does he want? What's he want? Worship, right? He wants worship. Something which he wants as a relationship, an ongoing covenant relationship. I want a relationship with you, Moab. Seek me out, God says. Bring me a lamb. Come worship me. Moab didn't say anything about that in their response. Moab just said, okay, here's your lamb. Now just give us a place to crash and this will all blow over and then we'll go back home. So that's not going to fly because verse 5 is God's response to that where God says, let me be more specific. Here's what I mean when I'm saying you come to me. Here's what I'm going to offer you, Moab. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. That's the King James, which begins with three words, and in mercy. It's one word in the Hebrew, and it's just the word for mercy or pity or compassion. Same idea. So compassion, with compassion, in compassion, he will sit on the throne that is established, and he shall sit upon it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, and he will judge, and he will seek judgment, and he will, my Bible says, haste righteousness. He will do right things with ease and skill. It means literally. This is a messianic prophecy. I told you at the beginning of this section of texts, of, of chapters, there's not much Jesus here. Here is a little oasis in this barren desert of no Jesus. Here's a little bit of Jesus here. This is Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, saying to Moab, what you want from us is just a place to crash, and then when it's all over and Assyria is done and put away, then you're going to go back to your land, reestablish your evil pagan kingdom, worship your pagan gods again, and pretend like none of this ever happened. And that's not what God wants. What God wants is a relationship. What God is offering is peace and shelter, but not in the immediate, not short-term peace and shelter, but long-term, eternal, messianic peace and shelter. I'm offering you the one who will sit on the throne. I'm offering you the next true king of Israel, which is the Messiah to come, who will sit in truth on the tabernacle of David, the Messiah, and he will be seeking judgment, who will rely his rule on just doing, doing justly and in doing things that are righteous. Moab is not interested in that, but that's all God's interested in. God is not concerned with the material things. You lost your home, who cares? This world is not your home. If you come with me, I'll provide you something spiritual. But Moab doesn't want that. So let's talk about Moab again, verse six. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even of his haughtiness, the King James says, arrogance, and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. We have seen, we have heard of, we know about the, uh, my Bible says, pride, internal arrogance, and he is very proud, external loftiness. He carries himself with this attitude of superiority, he being Moab as a person. Even his boastfulness in his speech and in his pride, again, internal arrogance. He's 
insecure. He offers empty boast, but he also layers on top of all that prideful and boasting deception and lies. Now, that seems to me to be, to, if you take verse 6 and what we'll see is the rest of this chapter, and you take that and try to reconcile it with the beginning of this chapter, the only way you can bridge those two thoughts is Moab, who sent what seemed like such a kind and positive message to God, must have been lying, which is exactly how they described in this verse. They wanted what God, they thought, was offering. They wanted a place to be. And so they'll say whatever they got to say. They'll do whatever they got to do. They'll throw a 20 in the plate if that's what you want. I'll come and I'll, I'll muddle through blessed assurance and just give me a place to feel good about myself, but I'm not really going to change. <coughs> that's Moab and a lot of other people too. Verse 7. Therefore, because you're dishonest, because you're not sincere, because you don't want to change, you're going to be destroyed. Verse 7. Therefore shall Moab howl for Moab, my Bible says. What does your Bible say? Well. Is it, is it Moab for Moab? Same thing? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Therefore, I'm going to listen to Moab cry, not for anyone else, but contrast that, because in a little bit, Isaiah is going to weep for Moab. That's a characteristic of godly people. We have compassion for even the ones who are our enemies. But Moab, they're only crying for Moab. Moab shall howl for Moab. Everyone shall howl. Why? For the foundations of Kirharseth shall you mourn. Surely they are stricken. Um, Kirharseth was a place where they planted their vineyards. It was a place where they grew their crops. This is going to be a theme for the rest of this chapter, or for a big chunk of it. The, the way in which God levels and destroys the land. So it's a thing that Isaiah does more than any other prophet when he describes God's judgment on a people. He doesn't just stop with the people. He goes all the way down to the ground. He says, I'm going to wither your crops. I'm going to burn down your fields. I'm going to make your grape vineyard stop producing. Your trees are going to go barren. He just goes all the way down, scorched earth, when he destroys you. So the place where you plant your vineyards and press your grapes and make your raisin cakes and so forth, it's all going to be destroyed, stricken, the King James says. Verse 8, for the fields of Heshbon languish, languish, and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the heathen have broken down the principal plants thereof. They are come even unto Jazer. They wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out, and they are gone over the sea. This is just describing the invasion that is coming to Moab. It hasn't happened yet. It's, it's written about at the beginning of this chapter as though it's already happened and now they're wandering and now they're looking for help. This is, this is pure future looking. It's, it's about 10 or so years away from the time of Isaiah's writing thereabouts. But it hasn't happened yet. But God knows it's going to happen and he foresees the attitude they're going to have and so it's written about in that sense. But just keep that in mind. He's visualizing the level of destruction that is coming to them. All their fields my Bible says languish, all their fields will grow weak. Imagine all the crops, you know, drooped over. Can't get nourishment, can't uh, grow strong, produce plants and vegetables and so forth. Uh, your vines broken down. By whom? It says in the text, the Lord of the heathen, the, the pagan general marching in with his army, coming to destroy. The vineyards of Jazer, it's a city about 10 miles north of Heshbon, a prominent city of Moab, uh, will be destroyed. But he who stretches out all the way from the wilderness to the Dead Sea, all from one corner of your land to the next, destroy. Verse 9. Therefore, this is Isaiah saying, Therefore I will bewail with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibma. I will water thee with my tears, O Heshbon and Elilah, for the shouting of thy summer fruits and for thy harvest is falling. Third person um, uh, Moab is weeping for Moab. First person, but I will weep for Moab. 
God speaking, Isaiah is his messenger in this text. So this prideful, already established, arrogant, self-serving people are going to be destroyed. Naturally, they're going to cry. Now, we've already had several chapters, and we have more to go, of all kinds of other destruction. They're not crying for any of them, but they'll cry for themselves, all right? Naturally. But it'd be nice to cry for someone else, too, but they're not interested in that. But Isaiah over here, speaking on behalf of God, says, what you get is what you deserve, and I'm going to level you and burn you down and smatter you into a thousand pieces, and then I'm going to weep over your ashes, because that's the character of God. His justice is just, or it wouldn't be called that. His, his punishment is righteous and must be done and is good when it is done, but it still breaks his heart because he knows what he's doing is destroying sinners who refuse to repent. Remember, the whole thing started at the beginning of the chapter with send me an olive branch. Make it sincere, but repent and I'll forgive you. And they, they weren't sincere, so they brought this on themselves. Isaiah says, as he... Go scorched earth on your ground. I'm going to water the ground with my tears. That's very poetic and very sad. Verse 10. And gladness is taken away, and joy out of the plentiful field. And in vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. This is just more description of how he's going to take out the land. But mine, um, where is it? Near the beginning of the verse, glad is taken away. Joy out of the plentiful field. What, what does your Bible say there at the beginning of the verse? Fruitful field. Huh? Fruitful field. Fruitful field. Anybody else have anything different? Joy, gladness is taken from orchards. Orchards. All right, that's good. It, it, it's just a word that's kind of generic. It could mean gardens. It says orchards. It could describe, like if you plant a garden and you want vegetables and fruits and things, that kind of garden. It could be a flower garden. It could just be nothing but for beauty. It's, it's just describing the beauty of the land. Now, who's going to destroy a garden? You know, like a garden didn't do anything to you. It takes a real, real jerk just to step on a flower, you know, and that's how they're described here. They're going to see as they're burning and looting and plundering and destroying and raping and killing, they're going to see your flowers and they're going to stomp on your flowers. Just no joy to be found, which is how the, the verse begins. Gladness is taken away. All the joy you derive from your orchards or gardens or whatever you want to translate it as is going to be completely gone. Everywhere you would find happiness, gone. 11. Wherefore my, again back to the first person, Isaiah speaking. Wherefore my bowels, the King James says, shall sound like a harp for Moab. My inward parts for Kirharish. My, my intestines, literally my intestines uh, tremble. My, like a, a harp. How do you make a harp make noise? You have to vibrate the strings. Well, my insides are vibrating, is what he says. Well, what does that mean? His stomach is not literally growling. He's not hungry. And compassion. Have you ever felt so bad for yourself or for someone else that you almost physically double over? You feel physical pain? That's this right here. And it's not his brother. It's not his mother. It's not himself. It's not his child. It's not his countrymen. It's an enemy. He's so full of God's compassion, being the inspired prophet, that he says, when I write about these things, my stomach hurts thinking about your destruction. It's, we think of a harp sound, it sounds beautiful, but the context is everything's just trembling in here. My inward parts shaking for what's going to happen to your people. Verse 12. And it shall come to pass when it, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. Moab 
starts this chapter being given an invitation by the one true and living God to repent and come to him. I don't know what I said to make her. Maybe she's from Oak. I don't know what I said to make her walk out. I'm going to give you the invitation to come. And, she'll be back. To come and to repent. They always come back. And you chose not to take it. So now what are you going to do when punishment comes? You're going to go up to your mountain. Remember, come to Mount Zion, verse 1. But they don't want to do that. Instead, you're going to go up to your mountain, to your sanctuary, to pray to your God. Well, here is the real God offering you all of that phoniness in the genuine article bona fide form. And they said, no thanks. I'll go to my mountain, to my God, and I'll pray. And the end of the verse says it all. He shall not prevail. Because how could he? If his God could have prevailed, surely somebody was praying to whatever that God is before all this happened. Like when they saw the army jump, 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 marching into town. Somebody should have shot up a prayer to whatever their God is. Clearly didn't work. So God says, but I, I can do it. I can help. And he's going to prove it when that same army gets to Israel later. Verse 13. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. So here's this prophecy. See, I told you they always come back. This this prophecy. And God says, it's, it's going to come to pass. Verse 14. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be condemned, uh, with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. Mine says, within three years, the years of a hireling. Anybody have anything different? Hired worker. Hired worker? Yeah. Is that the same as everybody else? All right, so if God had just said, it will shortly come to pass. Well, shoot, man, that could mean anything, especially when you're in God's timetable. Shortly come to pass for God. I mean, we're still waiting on the Lord to shortly come to pass. That's, that's how that works with the mind of God. If God gives us an actual number, if he says 30 years or three years, even then you got to wonder, okay, are we talking like metaphorical years? Is this apocalyptic writing? Is it a metaphor for something? Even if he says, no, I mean actually three years, even that, you got to wonder, well, okay, if he says it about right now, we're in April or May, May the 4th. Um, so what do, what do I start in January 1? Does it start three years from today? But when God says it's three years like the years of a hireling, what that means is when you hire a hired worker and you give them a contract, you say, you're going to work on my field or whatever it is for this set amount of time. And you're not going to work on my field for a second longer. Because when that time is up, that's when you get paid, not before. And as soon as you get that money in your hand, you have no incentive to continue working. You're off. You hit the road. You look for another work. So the years of a hireling is the precise. This, it, and no more. So God says three years. The years of a hireling, it's three years. It's not this generic. It could be a lot of things. No, I mean in three years, you're, you're donezo, is what he says. And then what? You'll have a great multitude withered down to a small remnant, very feeble. Now, the remnant, when it comes to Judah, they're also going to be destroyed. A lot of what you read here about Moab, you've read bits and pieces and, and you know similar writing about Judah, God's nation. And again with Judah, he says, and there'll be a remnant. But that remnant is going to go into captivity, and that remnant's going to survive and come out and produce the Savior of the world. Moab has no such luxury. They have no such prophecy. They have no such Father Abraham. They have no such Christ to come. Moab will have this very small remnant, and it's just a feeble reminder of what they used to be and no more. It's just the, the scattered remains of a dead people. And that's chapter 16. Remember, this chapter started with hope. Didn't have to go this way. Come send me an olive branch, and they did not, at least in good faith. Now, shift gears. It starts verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 1, and you think, all right, this chapter is about Damascus. 
It's not going to stay that way. God's going to very quickly, or Isaiah is going to very quickly shift gears to Israel. But it starts with Damascus. Look at verse 1. The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. So we finish with Moab. Here's another word of doom. This one's to Damascus. Damascus is, depending on where you are in history, the capital of Syria, or it's an independent city-state, or it's just an old city. It's, it's still in inhabitants today. It is today uh, the oldest continuously inhabited city in known history. It, it, Damascus has always been around. It has grown and shrunk in, in population and so forth. But especially in Old Testament times, there were moments in time when Damascus was as influential to the world stage as like New York City or, um, I don't know, what's a really major, or Hong Kong or some, some really important influential trade hub kind of city. That was Damascus right there. It's kind of nestled near the Mediterranean Sea. It has good relations with people going westward all the way to Spain and going eastward as far as they knew what was out there to the east. So it was this hub of trade and merchandise. And God says, and I'm going to level it. He's going to do the same thing to Tyre and Sidon, but that's a few chapters away. Here at Damascus. Damascus is going to be taken away from being a city. What's left of it? A ruinous heap. Incidentally, it's the only time here where you're going to get just a city being referenced. Others are connected as a, a kingdom or an empire. But here he's just focusing on a city. It shows you how important this city was in the region. Verse 2. The cities of Ar. Aroer, which is like adjacent to Damascus, sister, not a sister city, but like, um, I want to call it a subdivision, but this, like, kind of like a, a, a metroplex, if you will, and then smaller cities around them, all of them forsaken, for they shall be for flocks, which shall lie down, and none of them afraid. You're going to be so destroyed, your inhabitants will be driven out, and no one will be, uh, will, no one will remain there to scare off wild animals that make their way in. That's how much you're going to be destroyed. And the fortress also shall cease from Ephraim. All right, now we're done with Damascus. That was it. You just get two verses. Now we move on. Because what God is doing, and I'm not going to draw the whole thing, is you've got, you know, like Israel is here, and you've got Syria here with Damascus, and you have Assyria here, and Babylon's over here, Moab is here, right? And Judah, so Israel here and Judah. And so you've got this, this pattern of here's a burden on them, 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 here's a burden on them. God is slowly mapping out the journey of conquest of the Assyrian Empire. And he is inching his way closer. He's going to dance around. But he's ultimately painting a picture of the Assyrian invaders making their way to the last vestige, the last group that is held out against them. And that being, yes, that says Judah. Judah, the southern kingdom. They are the last stand that Assyria hasn't taken. And not because they're scared of Judah, not because Judah is really powerful, but just because they haven't got that far down the list yet. And they clearly are not worried about it because they're taking and taking and taking and taking. So you get these burdens on them, burdens on them, burdens on them. And each one of them are falling. I mean, they are the, the ones destroying. But each one of them falling. So God pronounces doom and then they're taken out. God pronounces doom and then they're taken out. Well, God's already pronounced doom on Judah. They're just watching them closing in, closing in. Naturally, you'd be a little nervous. So that's what the picture is being painted. All right. So now let's talk about Israel in the north. The fortress, the fortification, the protection, the fortified walls shall cease from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. So in the north, capital of Syria, capital of Israel, they're just right next to each other. It was several chapters ago we talked about how they frequently had alliances with one another. Israel and Syria. So there's your bridge between the one and the other. 
they shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Which sounds like a good thing until you realize <coughs> it's well established that the glory of Israel is fading and fading fast. So when God says, you're going to have as much prosperity as Israel, Ephraim being like the capital, if you will. You're going to have as much prosperity as Israel. Well, that's great, except Israel's prosperity is like, like the stock market. It's going all the way down and fast. Not good. Verse 4. And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. And that's just what I said. So you get the, what is the glory of Israel? What does the glory of Israel look like? How glorious are we talking here? Well, not that glorious, as a matter of fact. It's being made thin. It's reducing. It's shrinking. It's dwindling. It's waxing lean, growing thinner and thinner as the days progress, turning feeble, your Bible might even say. Verse 5. It's almost like they're being softened up, made, uh, made defeatable by an incoming threat. Verse 5. And it shall be as when the harvestman gathers the corn and the reapers the ears with his arm. And it shall be as he that gathers ears in the valley of Rephaim. You're going to be as easily plucked as candy from a baby or a farmer plucking corn. You're not going to pose a threat, in other words. Verse 6. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough. Four or five in the outermost fruitful branches thereof, says the Lord God of Israel. How barren are we talking here? When God is done with Israel, the north, Ephraim, however you want to call it, what's it going to be like? Well, Assyria is going to come in, and they're going to start shaking trees. They're going to start taking their hammers and smacking trees, which is what you do. It's threshing. You thresh the trees. You have olives in the olive tree. You smack the, the, the um, what do we call that? Huh? Trunk. Trunk. Thank you. I grew up on a farm, if you don't know. You smack the trunk, and then it, the, the vibrations shake, and the olives, or whatever it is, whatever, would fall. Well, that's what they're going to do, but it's not. they're not just literally doing this to your fruits. They're doing this to your people. They're plucking your people. It's effortless to them. It's just smacking left and right and taking people. But there'll be some left. Yes, because when you strike a tree and everything falls, there's always two or three in the top, and you think, ah, they don't matter. And that's what's left. Not exactly cream of the crop being left behind here. Well, they are on the top, but not the cream of the crop. Verse 7. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. Very parallel, except with one notable exception, with Moab. With Moab, I'm going to come in, I'm going to destroy you. You had a chance to come to me, and you didn't, so I'm laying you down. Instead, you're going to run up to your mountain, to your sanctuary, and pray to your God, your false God, who can't help you. All right, that's a bad end. Do the same thing to Israel. My people, history I have with them. And I'm going to punish you. I'm going to smack you. I'm going to hurt you. And you're going to run to your mountain. You're going to pray, but you're going to pray to me. You're going to pray to your maker. Your eyes will have respect to. Your eyes will um, revere and place above all others the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah's pet phrase. He says that like 30 times in this book across 66 chapters to describe God. You, you will finally, you pagan, idolatrous, wicked, sinful people will have learned your lesson. You're going to come the hardest of hard ways, but you'll learn your lesson. You will have respect to the holy, separate, one, unique of Israel, your God. The one who was here for you that you turned away from. Unlike Moab, you'll turn back to. Now, the circumstances they're turning back, it's all very kind of condensed. The history, it's all very kind of summarized. But the gist of it is there and it's just going to be how and when will they turn back to god well they're going to have to go into captivity they're going to find themselves in 
being tossed around one captive nation to another and eventually make their way back home. And then what will happen is they'll say, well, let's never be idolatrous again. And so if, if here is what God wants, they went so far to the left, they started worshiping other gods. So they say, well, let's not ever do that again. Let's run as far to the opposite side as possible. And let's just make ourselves Pharisees. And let's be extremely legalistic. Let's, let's govern everybody down to the T. Let's make sure we put extra laws so that nobody ever does what we did so that we don't go back into captivity and thus the Pharisees. So when Jesus comes along, Jesus is here. They ran from here to here. And Jesus says, let me show you the one true way. Well, what did they think of Jesus? They thought, you're radical. You're a leftist. You're, you're, you're extreme. You're going to get us in trouble. So naturally, they hated him. Now, the Sadducees hated him for a different reason, but that's why the Pharisees hated him, because they saw him, to use the American political viewpoint, just as an illustration, they saw him left of where they were, when in fact he was right. And I mean right as a correct. He was correct. They were not. So that's, that's the consequence. But we're not looking at that right now. God just says, good news, you're going to return back to your maker. You're not going to be idolatrous again. Just a different problem. Verse 8, to add on to that thought, you will not look to the altars, to the work of your hands, idols. Neither shall you respect that which your fingers have made, and the groves and the images, the places where you place your idols and your images, and you worship them, and whatever. In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken, my Bible says bow, which is another word for branch, but really it means forest. Is that what your Bible says? Woods, forest, anybody? Deserted places. And hilltops. Huh? Wooded heights and hilltops. Yes, perfect. All right, I'll come back to that in a second. So, in that day, your strong cities will be wooded heights and hilltops. And an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. Israel will go from being a vibrant nation with well-populated cities to poetically described as this long-abandoned path in the middle of a wooded area. And you know you can tell there used to be a road here, but it's overgrown and it's clearly not been lived in for a long time or not been used for a long time. It's the remnants of a past civilization. This is the punishment they're going to have that will lead them to turn back to God. There used to be there used to be a something here, and now it's a has been place. That's what's going to become of Israel. Verse ten. Why? Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and you have not been mindful of the rock of your strength. Therefore shall you plant pleasant plants and shall set, uh, set it with strange slips. My Bible says plant pleasant plants. What, what, what does yours say? The end of the verse. Plant. Say the same thing? All right. Yes, okay. Which sounds like a good thing. But remember, what Isaiah does a lot is he employs something called parallelism, which is a Hebrew writing style, where he'll say a thing and he'll say the same thing in just different words. He'll convey the same idea in a different way. He does that in this verse. You've forgotten the God of your salvation, not mindful of the rock of your strength. Same idea, expressed differently. You wanted to plant pleasant plants. You wanted to plant beautiful things. Sounds like a good thing. But then the next phrase is, and you grew, my Bible says, strange slips, foreign flowers, literally. All right. This is God's way of saying, you turned away from me and you set your eyes on the beautiful things of godlessness, the beautiful things of worldliness. And you got in bed with the beautiful flowers of paganism and idolatry. And that's, those are the beautiful flowers and things that's previously talked about. So in so doing, you forgot who the one God of your salvation is. Verse 11. In the day 
shall you make the plant to grow, and in the morning shall you make the seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Your chickens will come home to roost, to use the uh, old colloquialism. So you put your trust in other nations, you plant their flowers in your gardens, and you just coo and con and admire how beautiful they are because you know God only has that one kind of flower. And yeah, it was good, I guess, but you had to follow all these rules to keep the flower growing. But all these other flowers, all you got to do is plant them and water them and you know, you know kill a baby or two and you know <laughs> sacrifice whatever you need to sacrifice for this pagan God, and everything's great. <laughs> Look how beautiful they are. And God says, yeah, but then... After I destroy everything, flowers are gone, and suddenly not so pretty anymore. So the theme of this this text that we've looked at has very, I wouldn't say subtly, it, but it shifted from burden of Moab, burden of Damascus, burden of Israel, and it stops really being a burden. It's more about a why, not a what. Like a burden is like, here's what's going to happen to you. This is kind of woven with this, why is this happening to you? And you see more now that we're talking about Israel, more the heart of God come out. You're my people. What have you done to me? What have you done to this relationship of ours? He uses more poetic language. You know, you planted false flowers in your garden, and I'm going to have to come in and destroy it all, and you're going to be sad, and I'm going to be sad that you're sad over these false gods. And eventually you'll turn back to me, but now you just want to look to other allies, and you want to look to other help against me. Well, the lesson is if God's not your ally, you have no ally. I'm going to destroy all these things around you, and then you're going to realize nobody can help you but me. Verse 12. Woe to the multitude of many people, which, uh, which make a noise like the sea of the like, sorry, which make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. Um, the many people here is Assyria. Woe to them who are coming in do this terrible thing and look how Assyria is described they're described first with what you hear you hear this army marching in and it sounds like uh, a waterfall you know a real Niagara Falls rushing booming kind of sound it sounds like the sound of um, well it, like yeah. the thundering of the sea that yeah right yeah that's what the yours has the roar yeah. of the sea the roar of the nations perfect I don't like to say the word R-O-A-R because I have a speech impediment but yes exactly um, the rushing of nations, it sounds like a whole giant army is coming just for you. Like the rushing of the rushing of mighty waters. Same <coughs> idea. 13. The nations, the nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. So here comes this seemingly unstoppable foe. And God says, you're going to look to Egypt. They can't help you. You're going to look to Edom. They can't help you. You may look to Moab. You may look to Syria. You may look to whoever around you. And nobody can help you. But I can help you. You've got this wall of water that's crashing towards you. That's like my specialty. I split seas all the time. That's what I do, God says. So if you will turn to me, I can stop the tide. Like You've heard the expression, pushing against the tide. And how impossible that is, that's the whole point. You can push against the tide. It's just going to sw swirl all around you, right? You can't push against the tide. And God says, well, I can. And I can stop the tide of Assyria beating down on you. And he will prove that, but not yet. You'll see him do that. It's just a little teaser. You'll see him do that at the end of the first half of this book, chapter 36, 37 or so, when that same army that will take out Israel comes to the front door of Jerusalem and they lay siege to the city 
And then they all go to sleep and they think, tomorrow we'll kill them. And then they never wake up because God sends one angel. But we'll get there later, 2 Kings 19. So that's what I'm going to do to them. And I'm going to rebuke them. This water that's rushing in, I'm going to turn it back. And they shall flee far off. And they will be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind. Like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. You ever see a tumbleweed? Just That's what they're going to look like. This unstoppable force. Just come. Just a fart in the wind. Verse 14. And behold, even at evening tide, trouble. And before the morning, he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. This is God's prophecy of what he's going to do to the people that he's already appointed the destroyer of many nations. I'm going to turn all of these evil forces against you. But at the end of it, when I'm ready, I'm going to say no more. And what am I going to do? At the evening tide, before the morning, I'm going to cause, in just one word, he just says, trouble. Now, if God says, I'm going to bring you trouble, it's probably going to be catastrophic. But for God, it's just a Tuesday. It's, you know, a minor inconvenience. But it's going to be an angel cutting off 185,000 heads or so in the middle of the night. So we'll get there. That's a few chapters away. But this is the prophecy of it. It's the promise of it. This seemingly unstoppable force that he's done a very eloquent job, this writer, over the past several chapters, showing you how unstoppable he is. And God says, eh, I'll stop him. But you got to turn to me, or what's the point? That's the whole point of the text. This is the portion of them that spoil us. This is who they are. This is this terror that's stealing from us, destroying us, plundering us. And this is the lot of them. This is the, the consequences coming to them that rob us. Lesson learned. No matter what world power is at the top of the mountain, God is above the mountain. You can look up. Who's king of the mountain right now? Who's king of the hill right now? Who's in charge of the world right now? God is. You just can't see him. Well, I can see Assyria. I can see Sennacherib and his army marching and destroying and laying siege. And I can hear his mocking voice. But God is above. And God says, when he's ready, when I'm ready, off with his head. Actually, it'll be a shiv in the back by his son. But again, we'll get there later. All right. That's it. I finished with four minutes to spare. Any comments or questions from anybody? We are well on. Don't you hate it when I ask that? I immediately start talking. We are well on our way, perfectly in time uh, to finish before the summer quarter. Or as the summer quarter starts, we'll finish through chapter 23. Because that's the end of the burden section. So we'll pick back up in the fall. 24 through 39 is the build-up to Assyria taking or trying to take Judah. And it gets really, it's like, it's cinematic the way it builds and builds and builds and builds. And then God lays the smack down. It's a beautiful text. We'll study that. We'll study the Second Kings version of it. And we'll go back and forth. It's great. My favorite part, because Sennacherib, he's so cocky. He, what are you going to do? You're not leaving yet. you got kids in class still. Sennacherib, he's so cocky that he starts dissing. He's standing there at the walls of Judah and Jerusalem, and he's mocking the people. He's mocking the soldiers in Hebrew's tongue. In the Hebrew tongue, he's insulting them. He's saying things like, I'm going to make you drink your own urine and eat your own poop. He's saying things like that, except he doesn't say poop. He says whatever the word is that's vulgar in their language. So he's saying that in Hebrew. And so... The king sends a messenger out to say, could you please stop speaking Hebrew? You're scaring the guards. That's what they do. That's how desperate the situation is. And if it was not for the faith of one ruler praying to God, they would have been toasty. So we'll get there. And, and it's just a whole thing. It's really great. All right, that's all I got. I'm done. You guys can leave early. <laughs> Chapter 18 next week.